Good morning. I'm going to do the cliched thing. Good morning. There we are. You know what also helps convince me that the audience is alive? Moving on up. <laughs> just saying. I like to see all of y'all, and some of you in the back are just blurs. It is a great morning, actually. The heat is down. Mm. Got to ride my bike in today while wearing a suit jacket, and I didn't die. <laughs> Jokes aside, that was a really weird first hymn, wasn't it? So I wanted us to sing that hymn because that hymn comes from our own backyard in that during the Lawrence textile strike of 1912, that hymn along with other working and organizing songs were sung. Singing that hymn was not meant to endorse its variety of ableist and very gendered language, but in order to point out, as our reading says today, who makes up the soil that our trees grow in. And so I thought it was important to have a little bit of history in our service today. Because the sermon has a lot of it. For those of you who grew up uh, in the area, you might be familiar with the Lawrence textile strike. But for those of you like me who are not from Massachusetts, I had no idea that it had ever happened. Oh, yes, that makes me feel better. I was about to be like, everyone already knows this. But clearly it's a piece of history that not everyone knows, which is interesting because it was a strike comprised of over 20,000 workers that involved nearly every mill in Lawrence, Massachusetts, and was the only time that the alarm bell for that city was rung. Not fire, not anything else, a labor strike. And it was a labor strike that would last for three months through, one of a, through a very brutal winter. On January 1st of that year, a law came into effect that reduced the amount of hours available to employees. Any of us who, like myself, have worked an hourly job can tell you when your hours are cut, that's not celebration. And that means that you have a net decrease in your take-home pay, and I will remind you that this was a 1912 winter before climate change started to affect us as much as it does now and a lack of money meant a lack of heat. Then as now the powers that be thought that the strike would be over soon. After all who can strike in the winter? And now when I say the powers that be I'm sure many of you are nodding along unsurprised of course, the rich, the mill owners, and the politicians were quick to dismiss the strike. But when I say the powers that be, I do not merely mean the rich, the mill owners, and the lawmakers. I also mean the more established unions. For example, the American Federation of Labor, one of the largest unions at the time, actually tried to break the strike early, thinking that the strike would end up damaging the cause of labor. And of course, it bears mentioning that both the AFL and the mill owners doubted the strike for the same reasons. This was a strike led by women. The law that was passed only affected women's hours and pay. This was a strike led by young women. Half of the mill workers were women between the ages of 14 and 18. This was a strike led by immigrants 
Many of the workers did not speak English very well as they had recently arrived. And this was also a strike that was led by a racially inclusive coalition with strikers coming from over 40 nationalities. As is often the case when movements are led by folks without privilege, the ability to carry it through is seen as unpossessed. Well, guess what? The powers that be were wrong as they often are. And this strike led by young women, by immigrants, and by people of color attained a victory. By the time the strike was over, the mill owners agreed to many of the demands of the strikers. The strikers had prepared, planned, and organized for this moment, and it succeeded. When I was about 14, and maybe 13, I went on a mountain biking trip with the Boy Scouts. We mountain biked all day, then we camped, and then we mountain biked again. It was a blast. And the trip had been going great for two days until tragedy struck. And this tragedy came in the form of a route that lay across the path. And more importantly, a route that I did not see. I struck it with my front wheel, and 13-year-old me went hand over handlebars and slid down the gravel path. Now, I'm not entirely sure how far I actually slid on that unforgiving gravel, but in my memory, it was half a mile and at least two hours. <laughs> Regardless, by the time I was done, I had road rash over a good 40% of my body and a few new holes. And that's not an exaggeration. The deepest one was about three quarters of an inch, and it was in my knee, and it was full of sharp pieces of gravel. I won't bore you with the story, but I did heal with some minor complications. But the important thing is, immediately after the accident, my scoutmaster set me down and asked me what had happened. I responded, I don't know. The route came out of nowhere. Which the scoutmaster said, where were you looking? I said, at the trail. He said, where in particular? And I said, with all the self-confidence and surety that only a 13-year-old who is already messed up can possess. I was looking at where my wheel touches the trail. Duh, that's how you bike. To which he responded, that's a really stupid way to ride a bike. You should already know what the path looks like and where your wheel is. What you should be looking at is the path 50 to 70 feet ahead of you. Although the textile strike was seen and reported as spreading rapidly, suddenly, and without warning, this was not true. A common metaphor for political movements or actions like this is there's a spark and then it spreads like wildfire. The spark certainly was there with the cut in hours and pay, but anyone who's ever built a fire will tell you sparks just don't spread. You have to collect kindling. You have to plan and prepare. The International Workers of the World, IWW, a very radical union, had been organizing in that area for years, about six to seven. Incidentally, when the IWW was founded, it was the only union at the time open to all races, all genders, and all nationalities. Hence why they were organizing in a mill town 
with a population of workers who primarily were not white men. Even once the law was passed, there was no immediate strike. Instead, discussions went on amongst the workers for three weeks. And after these discussions, two members of the IWW organized, and please hear the capital O on that, organized a strike committee of 56 people. Any of you who've served on a committee know that more than three is challenging. 56 people, four representatives of 14 different nationalities, and the committee then arranged for its strike meetings to be translated into 25 different languages and put forth a series of demands. This committee would guide the strike through three months of actions despite overwhelming adversity. The history of this is complex and I invite you to explore more, but in summary, by the time the strike was over, over three people had been killed, children had been beaten at train stations, organizers were framed for killings that were committed by police, and eventually organizers would end up speaking in front of Congress. I would also once again like to point out, this was 1912, and these folks were embodying Occupy Wall Street better than Occupy Wall Street. The whole thing that everyone said was so revolutionary with Occupy Wall Street where you have human microphones who pass along the message. 25 different languages, often in real time at these strikes meetings. This was real radical democracy. And most importantly, it was being enacted by people who American democracy had decided should not have a voice. But those folks held firm because of the tremendous amount of planning and preparation that went in the strike. They were organized, they were prepared, and they weren't going to leave. The ability to look at the path 50 to 70 feet ahead of you can be a spiritual practice. It is a tough practice, a demanding practice, but an incredibly strong practice. Now, I don't mean to say planning ahead is important because it's a utility. I think we've all had moments where we say, man, I wish I was more prepared today in the sermon. But that's not necessarily symptomatic of spiritually meaningful planning. The sign of preparation as a spiritual practice is when, in the moment of planning, you feel called to be where you are. You don't feel like a utility maximizer who's planning in order to be a more efficient cog. Instead, you feel nourished by the act of preparation. A theist might credit this nourishment to having a feeling of being able to see God's plan for oneself. Other traditions might frame this as a moment of deep connection between yourself and the universe. Regardless of what it is called, the spiritual power of planning for action is much harder to see and feel than the spiritual power of inaction. As I'm sure you can imagine, working in the religious field, I see lots of inspirational Facebook posts all the time. <laughs> and I often see ones that say, journaling, the spiritual practice of 2018. 
Exercise, new spiritual practice. Meditation, new spiritual practice. And that's not to say those are not spiritual practices. They certainly can be. And also, if you want to go classic, prayer, meditation, scriptural study. But rarely do you see an inspirational Facebook post that says, preparing to journal, a spiritual practice. Stretching before you exercise, a spiritual practice. The focus is all on the action itself and not preparing for it. So myself, I pray in the Islamic way. And one of the reasons I do, besides my deep love of Islam itself, is the practice of wudu. And wudu is the process you go through before you can pray. It involves cleaning yourself in a ritualistic manner. And most importantly, before you do anything, setting the intention in your mind of what prayer will be. And to be honest, I sometimes find wudu itself to be more spiritually fulfilling than prayer, because during wudu, I am looking ahead the path. I am planning and preparing, and by the time I'm actually praying, I am simply and confidently following the plan I have constructed. There is also a firm theology of preparation in Islam. There is the tradition that every step you take from between starting your wudu and actually praying increases the power of your prayer. Every step you take as part of the preparation makes the actual product that much stronger. I do not know if the organizers of the textile strike saw planning as a spiritual practice, but I hope that they did, because activism and agitation without strong spiritual roots often leads to burnout, disillusionment, and cynicism. I think we have all been in a moment where we have been activating and agitating for radical change only a couple months later to feel completely exhausted. Labor strikes are often seen as a phenomena of an earlier era. After all, we've seen the headlines about organized labor in decline, membership rapidly disappearing, but labor organizing has not vanished, nor has its importance vanished. For those of you who do not know, we are in the midst of a strike right now, one radical in the way that the Lawrence textile strike was radical, and also radical in a completely different way. Raise your hand if you know which strike I'm talking about. So we have a few, but definitely a minority. Don't be ashamed. You have not heard about it by design. For this is the national prison strike that started on August 21st and is going through September 9th the anniversary of the Attica prison uprising of 1971. The few major media outlets that are explicitly discussing it are certainly not making it headline news. You have not heard about it by design. The strike is calling attention to the fact that imprisoned people are being exploited. Their labor is being exploited. Their bodies are being exploited. They, some of them are being paid a penance others are not even being paid. In some states, people can legally be forced to work and not be paid anything. 
This system of being given, of not being given an option to work and not being given an option about pay is called prison slavery. And it is a glaring injustice. I do not, and the organizers of this strike do not, of course, mean to suggest that our current system is the exact same as the system of slavery that we have had in this country before. But the term prison slavery is accurate. The current system is designed to dehumanize, it is designed to denigrate, and it is designed to destroy. And it is designed to allow a few to profit off the labor of the many, and those many are comprised of individuals whose life and liberty are not in their hands. The world we are in is not new. The established labor unions during the time of the Lawrence textile mill doubted that a racially, linguistically, and religiously inclusive community of women were going to be able to maintain a strike. Today, many labor unions have not said that they support the prison strike. Similarly, most mainstream and establishment politicians on either side of the aisle are not talking about it. You have not heard about it by design. A notable exception is in Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who said, quote, I don't believe slavery should exist anywhere in the US, including in our prison system. Can I get an amen? amen. The world we are in is not new. The Lawrence strike succeeded for the same reason people thought it would fail. It was a multiracial, multi-ethnic action. In an op-ed this week, Eric Loomis, a professor of history at the University of Rhode Island, discussed how the strike is a, quote, multiracial action, but that African Americans make up a disproportionate number of the nation's prison population, and its leadership of this movement is no accident. This strike is part of a century's worth of labor actions to protest the compelled labor by black and brown bodies by a white-dominated society. The world we are in is not new. The Lawrence strike mobilized immigrants. On the first day of the nationwide strike, over 400 immigrants who are currently being held in private detention centers announced that they were joining the action. The world we are in is not new. Once again, this is a radical strike. Once again, the IWW has provided support in the form of their Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee. Unsurprisingly, the AF, AFL-CIO, the current incarnation of the union that tried to break up the textile strike, has not released a statement in support of the prison strike. I also want to tangent for a brief second to just highlight what prison labor means. About a week ago, the California Department of Corrections posted on Twitter, Today, more than 2,000 volunteer inmate firefighters, including 58 youth offenders, are battling wildfire flames throughout California. That was a brag. They were happy about that. They wanted to share that with the world. And that 58 youth offenders, are they kids? We don't know because the Corrections Department refuses to define the term for anyone who is asked. This is fundamentally unjust. Furthermore, 
when these prison firefighters get out of prison, they cannot be employed as firefighters, a skill that they have managed to learn throughout their sentence, because according to California, you can fight fires if you're in prison, but if you are not in prison, you cannot have a criminal record in order to fight fires. This is the type of thing that the prison strike is meant to be raising awareness of. It is not coincidental that The Atlantic currently has an article titled, The Prison Strike is Working Exactly as Planned. This strike did not spontaneously appear, although it may seem to those of us who are unaware of it. The seeds for this strike were planted years ago. This is the sequel to a strike in 2016, and these are all sequels spiritually to a variety of prison strikes. Now, I hope that this has gotten you fired up. I hope that when you hear this, you think, what can I do to help? But I do not want you to go running out of here thinking, what do I need to do right now? Take a lesson from the textile strikers and the prison strikers and plan. And plan spiritually. Any task you undertake will be long and hard. The congregational year is starting next Sunday. The lay and the staff leadership have planned throughout the summer to make the year fantastic. There is much more to plan. Please join us. Because we all want to live in beloved community. And in order to get there, we have to plan with our faith community. We have to plan with our political community, and we have to plan with our family and friends. So please, take a lesson and plan.